Hello, everybody. Welcome to Art Blog Radio. I am Roberta Fallon, and I'm going to be your host today. With me is Patrick Kue, who is an Art Blog contributor and longtime Art Blog advisor. Hello, Patrick. Hey, Roberta. Patrick is going to be asking some questions and joining the conversation also. And we're very excited today to be speaking with Peter Shahovsky. Welcome, Peter. Thank you. Excited to be here. Yeah, we're very excited also. Peter's an artist and educator based in Minneapolis whose large black and white posters based on handmade drawings that he made, they started popping up on walls around Philadelphia. Now, Peter is based in Minneapolis. So first of all, what's the mystery of that? Why are they in Philadelphia? And while some of the posters have, they were weak pasted on walls and some have been scraped off the walls or covered up, others are still there and they broadcast messages. There's lots of words to read and very graphic images to see. So Peter created this as part of his COVID-19 labor camp project that started right as we started locking down in March for the pandemic. It's very pointed commentary not for the faint at heart, and the imagery likewise, not for the faint at heart, and it's about the pandemic's mishandling. Peter, these are posters from apparently the first 100 days of the lockdown, and right. he made them daily. So talk mm -hmm. about the germination of the project and, and mm. what's going on now. Well, the project... Actually, at this point, it's completed. I have stopped making the daily drawings on November 3rd. I Ever since the beginning of the project, the question when to end it or how many of those drawings I will be making, that was a, that was a big consideration initially simply because in lockdown, I only had so much materials, and so that was like a considered mm -hmm. factor. Later, it was, you know, just how long can I possibly keep doing this. And then I started thinking about meaningful events or, or a sign, if you will, for when this thing might happen. And I realized at some point, maybe a couple of months into the project, that the furthest I was thinking about an ending point was the election. And, mm -hmm. and as the months rolled by, it became more and more apparent that that would be the, the, the right moment for the series to, to end for a number of reasons. But to put it simply, I felt that we arrived at a kind of precipice or point of no return and and some big decisions will have to be made and and regardless of the outcome of those of those decisions the the project would have to change dramatically its its scope direction tone so it felt like the right moment and based on the responses online i feel like that was really the right moment for the project to end so it is a complete uh, set. There are 225 drawings in the series. And, you know, as far as germination and the sort of beginning of the project, as you said, it was started in the in the early days of the lockdown. And partly, I would say, as a kind of self-defense mechanism, you know, just wanting to do something with my hands or, or find a, a point of focus in otherwise chaotic or diffused reality. A lot of your leopard camp posters in Philadelphia have been affixed on USPS, you know, relay boxes and boarded up uh, stores, even dumpsters. So meaning like the, the greatest, you know, fixtures of, of an American city. 
Mm-hmm. And I was wondering, what is the strategy uh, behind that? And also, you know, more generally using a, a city like Philadelphia, but also New York and Minneapolis and Baltimore as uh, a support for social and responsible art. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not sure if I can really say that there is a strategy. I, I think if, if there is something that feels like a strategy is to simply trust the kind of organic dynamic that evolved around the project. When I started making the first drawings, I, well, first of all, I didn't even think of them as posters, as posters. That Mm. notion came out of the, me thinking about the appropriate visual, means of visual communication that somehow reflected the subject matter that I was dealing with, which was this really rich, dense, complex political landscape. And so the language of poster as a kind of public space, visual discourse platform became very obvious. And especially because in the early days of the pandemic, it was framed, at least in the US, as a kind of war, war on invisible enemy, we were told. And and so the idea of looking at posters and, and intentionally drawing on historical references that bring to mind the the vernacular of World War II posters and on from all over the world sort of became obvious to a degree and and evident to me as the right kind of combination of visual means. So these things ended up looking like posters more and more as the series developed. And for a lot of people online, even though I was photographing my ink drawings, so about as sort of classic visual art form as you can get, people kept referring to them as prints because they just looked like printed matter. And and so I th- I think somebody online said, you know, we should post these in, in public space. And that sort of caught on. And a lot of people ended up talking about this. And and so, like I said, a kind of a trusted, trusting attitude about allowing the work to take its course led me to the opportunity to print some of these images on a larger scale. This is, you know, my school, MCAD, was also on lockdown during the summer. And fortunately for me, the director of our sort of print center that we have, a service bureau at, at MCAD, was making weekly visits to visits to, to the space to maintain the equipment. And we got to talking and he said, yeah, I can make some scans and we'll see if we can get some prints done. And so that's how it started. And And the work was presented in Rochester first on the inside of the gallery. And then I was approached by folks out of Baltimore with this idea of putting them in public space. And I immediately loved this concept because as much of a kind of lockdown interior social media existence as this project had, the idea of, of it becoming a public uh, space experience was very, very attractive to me. And this is a whole separate issue. We can talk about the sort of appeal or importance of that. But but the crew out of Baltimore, we we discussed some strategies, I guess. After all, maybe there is a strategy there. Um, <laughs> strategies about what to post and, and how. And so so my notion was that to sort of flip it upside down a little bit. Typically, you have one design and you print it in a large quantity and those posters sort of are present everywhere. In my case, it was singular print of each design, but many designs. So there is already a different dynamic at work as far as that public space and the language of poster and its presence is concerned. But 
I like thinking about it as sort of an exhibition, right, where you have these individual artworks distributed in a given area. And in Baltimore, these electrical boxes were like the perfect size for to handle the two by three foot posters. I think they were three by four feet, so exactly kind of a same proportion thing. So that became the the specific distribution approach. And then once I started posting pictures from Baltimore, people from other cities reached out and said, you know, we should do this in our city and in our city as well. And and this is how it happened. This is how the project continued to evolve. Every aspect of it, whether it's the postcards or the book or the printed posters, and is essentially a kind of volunteer effort that is triggered by folks who engaged with the work online and felt somehow connected to it. And, and I feel there's a moment where the audience basically takes ownership of that work and and it plays a different role, I feel, because the agency of the audience is that is the is the factor that really sort of reroutes the project in a, a slightly different direction. I'm always on the lookout for those opportunities and you know really happy that this project had that kind of dynamic. So you could almost call it viral transmission ah, of interesting. the project? <laughs> Funny. You know, it's not the first time somebody said that about this because, you know, in the context of the work that confronts a, you know, a pandemic that, that is viral in its essence. Uh, yeah, I, I'm i not sure if the re- if work really, you know, truly attained this viral status <laughs> by like online criteria, but I... I think you're right in the sense that people picked it up and and redistributed. <laughs> I mean, it's really hard not to talk about spreading, right? <laughs> <laughs> but this is such a good spread. It's like the antidote, yeah. which is great. Right, right, right. So I want to talk about Philadelphia because mm. Philly has been a hotbed of political activism for years now. Well, going back to 1776, as some people might say, but you've been here before, and I think mm-hmm. that's so interesting. You were at Tyler School of Art doing a project that was similarly wordy and printed, although no imagery. And then at Eastern State Penitentiary, you had a project that was quite different mm-hmm. from this printed hand-drawn sort of uh, motif. So can you talk a little bit about your relationship to Philadelphia? Did you find a particular thing going on here that you could respond to? Hmm. Yeah, I guess, first of all, I love the city. I've I've had a a good fortune of uh, visiting several times on account of the projects you mentioned. And did I find something? Yes, I I think both, (laughs) both of those projects were possible largely because of these amazing institutions that were connected to them, right? Let's see. Let, let me just uh, briefly address the, the prison piece, which was a collaboration that I did with my friend Rich Shelton out of L.A. And it is a very different formally work, but it was the prison itself that really was the point of attraction because it is such an amazing historic place and we both, Rich and I both loved the fact that somehow it became a cultural institution, right? That it, it ended up housing these installation artworks in the unique cells. And both Rich and I have 
kind of a prison past, if you will. Both of my parents worked in prison at one time uh, in their life. And I, I often say this in a cryptic way. I spent a good amount of time in a prison back in Poland. And when people hear this, they, they're like, you know, their eyes pop out. And like, yeah. oh yeah, what happened? And I... <laughs> I spent a good amount of time in prison as a as a kid because my mom was a prison nurse and I, mm. I, I just hung out with her at work. But that meant that I, the dynamic of that environment was somehow always, I don't know, part of the building blocks for me. And so anyway, when this, uh, when this opportunity presented itself, we both kind of were intrigued and ended up developing a project very much about the building, about the kind of the poetry embedded within the, the prison setting. But the reason why I wanted to dwell a little bit on this one is to say that my practice is very diverse formally. And each project, for me, part of the task is to understand the unique content that I'm dealing with and try to find the appropriate language to address or to kind of process that content. And so the formal language of the COVID series, like I was mentioning earlier, the idea of arriving at these posters that feel a little bit like wartime posters or some kind of propaganda vernacular, et cetera, et cetera, is sort of outcome of that of that questioning. What is the right language to talk about this? And you know, and it's a it was a different situation at Tyler, uh, where I ended up presenting this massive piece that I called them. And it's a project that is largely focusing on the economic inequalities in the country. And uh, it was initially written, or the text was written in response to Occupy Wall Street mm -hmm. protests. And it's a pretty intense project for me. And uh, I think a big learning experience also. It's not sure how much time we want to devote to this, but I will briefly say that the that work too has an element of my own sort of expression and my own focus at processing our reality. And it's the, the them component, the banners that I print and then end up being walked outside of the mm -hmm. gallery into the public space. So it sort of breaches that art institution space. But it also has this other leg where people send me requests for the texts of banners to print. I print them and those banners become banners at the protests and mm. so the project ever since i started doing this in 2015 has this dual life on one hand i execute my work but at the same time the actual printing apparatus which is this massive thing that uh, i have thousands and thousands of yards of this material that's three feet tall and so i hand cut these letter forms that i print them one at a time i must have printed thousands of characters at this point. I lost count because, you know, that's been over five years now of this project and the banners that people requested end up going to all different cities um, around the country. A little bit like what happened with the COVID series. And part of it is that there is that moment of ownership or agency that the, that the audience sort of exercises over the work. And like I said, I look for these opportunities and I encourage them somehow as much as I can within the work too. Very cool. I, I just wanted to go back to your audience uh, since, you know, again, this um, series are in, you know, major cities, which, you know, again, historically have been the breeding grounds for, you know, social movements against bigotry and for racial justice. I was wondering, you just mentioned that, you know, 
part of your work is collaborative. You, you're getting feedbacks from, from, mm-hmm. from people. But so are you thinking about, you know, the audience, you know, of these big American cities, which are already, I think, you know, convinced, you know, of the general message of, of these posters? And of course, the slogans are so impactful. As I, I'm, I'm just wondering, you know, who are you trying to reach besides, you know, convinced audience uh, mm. by exhibiting in major American cities? Yeah, it's a good question. I think somebody also asked me about, or, or maybe not asked about it, but suggested, oh, you know, these should go into decidedly different territory. And I, I don't disagree with that. The likelihood of finding volunteers in those areas to actually distribute the posters would be a different different challenge. And, and you know, again, this is what I meant when I said there's no strategy as far as like, oh, I'm going to deal with this city, this city, and this city. It happened that way because those were the cities that some folks simply reached out and said, We'll do it. You know, we want to do it. And it still is happening. There's a, there's a, a set right now in Portland where the posters are being uh, distributed there. So do I think about the audience and how, who I speak to? Absolutely. And with this project, it was if, if it weren't for this sort of direct dialogical engagement of the audience, the project wouldn't have sustained. I wouldn't be able to sustain it for as long as, as I did. And And it was really, actually, I would say, the amazing discovery of in how many different ways people were connecting with this work. And I am still not, I mean, I have some theories as to why that might have been the case, but it really is uh, kind of astounding. And I try to save some of the comments or some of the feedback that I was receiving, receiving from the audience because it was so I don't know, in some ways just really beautiful too, like simple things, but repeated multiple times by different people, such as the fact that it simply helps people feel sane, helps people understand that they're not alone in thinking this way about the situation, that there's somebody else that speaks to their sort of inner thoughts. Those are the things that are super humbling for an artist to hear and incredibly motivating too, because... I do think, and this is, I'm not sure how to talk about it in any other way, but somewhere along the, the way, maybe halfway into the project, two, three months into it, I really started to feel that my relationship to this work had changed and that it wasn't just me putting up my work out there. I was tending to it. It was already its own thing. And the work just needed me to kind of tweak it every day a little bit, add this new new thing that would calibrate or recalibrate the whole, the work as a whole a little bit because you know new things happened and it needed to acknowledge the new developments in some ways so i was sort of a like a maintenance person in the, in this <laughs> in this process <laughs> it's it's true i mean it was it was very very clear to me and there is a kind of ebb and flow to that that dynamic that relationship with the work and i think if there's one constant element that that I really felt strongly about is that I, every time, every day in the in the morning before I actually started drawing, I had to pause for a moment and and really ask myself whether I am being hundred percent honest about what I am about to put out there. And that sense of like earnestness and I think an element of vulnerability that comes with that 
ultimately did translate, at least for some people in the work, because that kind of uh, exchange, that conversation that ensued felt very true to me. And I mean, you know, uh, yeah, I can't tell you. The amount of time that I put in to execute these pieces every day is one thing. But then the amount of time I actually spent talking to people about the work or about the issues that are surrounding it, it was a whole different a uh, whole different ballgame. And after the nearly eight months of the of the project, when I stopped, it was sort of like, I don't know, like a hole opened up, like a mm -hmm. void in in the day where I realized just how intensely this this uh, this process took over my life. You know, it's it was it was an, an incredible durational challenge. It was labor. Yes, and it was. And you working all the time. So let's get into that a little bit. <laughs> That's really funny. All right. yeah. You run your work under I, I don't want to call it a brand did you, because yeah, did that's you, too Did you almost say that that you run labor camp? <laughs> I, I could hear that. Uh, that's great. Well, you do run labor camp. Yeah, but sort of. Or it yeah. runs me. I don't know. <laughs> so talk about it, because it's a very interesting and philosophical rubric yeah. under which you are developing yeah. all your projects. Yeah, it's 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 strange. This I use the word framework because it's a wonderfully flexible term. It could mean a lot of different things, but in a little bit like the the idea of this of the labor camp that became this umbrella concept that. Initially, I want to say it started as a, a term that was maybe more directly focusing on my sound-related uh, work, which uh, and that focused largely on on work surrounding archival historical recordings from all over the the world, different periods of history, and I I was always intrigued and interested in working about what I would refer to as extreme historical phenomena and, you know, events that happened some time ago, but their resonance seems to carry an impact on uh, how we are today. So to, to sort of like yeah, give you a nutshell of the whole, of the whole idea. And I was often thinking about the, that historical impact a little bit like the way the sound propagates in the air, you know, through the particles in the air, kind of a push, push and pull dynamic. And I was thinking about metaphorically, maybe about how that happens over time through history as well. And this process of really digging and researching and trying to piece something together from these fragments of the past, it was a little bit like, I mean, a little bit, it's, I, I felt it was work. It was it was work that needed to be done, that there's something to be learned from that, that there's a point of value in doing this work. And labor camp as a as a historical concept, you know, is in and of itself one of those extreme historical phenomena. And maybe we would like to think about it as historical phenomena. Of course, there's many labor camps right now in operation in different places around the, the world. So it's not <laughs> kind of a distant thing but yeah but that was actually part of the my thinking about looking at these historical events just to say they're not as sort of like safely deposited in the, the abyss of history as we'd like to think and and to you know to be honest the the situation that we are finding ourselves in this country right now is a best illustration of, of that i mean who would have thought that we would be looking at the the political uh, landscape in the United States in the, the early 21st century and and discussing it 
as almost carbon copy of the European landscape at the beginning of the 20th century. hundred years later, we are appear to be, you know, rehearsing this, this painful, complex, disturbing history mm-hmm. from another context. And I don't know, it's as if though we haven't really learned much about, about where that took us. So these echoes, these repetitions, reverberations, resonances, uh, there are, I'm using intentionally this, uh, this sort of like uh, uh, sonic terminology because that was a, bit, a big part of that early labor camp work that kind of blurred the distinction between sound and history. But then the labor camp framework moved, or I realized that it applied to my visual work as well, my printed matter. I print a lot of leaflets. You know, those are like by default connected to military and historical context. Everything suddenly seemed like it's part of was part of the labor camp. And I, you know, I my sort of joking response is I think it might be running me in the sense that I at this point feel that it would be very hard for me to produce new work that one way or the other would not feel like it's part of that framework. And, you know, there's, I think there's something about maybe the way I'm thinking about the work in general, which is sort of like a network of ideas. Each project is, and the COVID project is an excellent example of that because with 225 drawings, there the, the internal references, external references, connections to other artifacts. It is a truly a network of concepts and ideas. But I also look at my whole body of work in that way. There are numerous connections within this project that connect to other works. Not looking far, the Them project that, that I was talking about earlier, that it was executed at, at, at Tyler, there are direct links to that project within the COVID report projects uh, mm-hmm. on I can think of the top of my head, two, three separate drawings that use almost word for word phrasing from the them project. I make these connections very intentionally so as to expand further that network of ideas. I think maybe it's some somehow the the idea of thinking of history as, as this massive network uh, of interconnected concepts and ideas that maybe re- somehow saturated my thinking about the, the artwork in that way too. But I, one more thing I will say about this labor camp, because this could go on for a long time. But I'll say that when people ask me this question, partly because I think that we like, again, we like to think about this as a kind of a distant concept. And I bring up examples of Facebook, for example, and, and say, you know, we literally are working for Facebook nonstop. There's 24-7 new content that is being generated by the users of this platform. And ultimately, we're doing this work for free. Uh, we're doing this work that inflates the value of the of that platform. I did it too. The entire COVID project was uh, present in on Facebook and Instagram, right? It's the same company that essentially created that space that we are all occupying working. And... You know, one would say, oh, it's just me, you know, tapping on the phone. I mean, like, that's true, but that's the difference between the 20th and 21st century, that what constitutes labor, labor that produces value that then enriches the the ruling class, is very different. I love this uh, term cognitariat, which is like a 21st century proletariat, right? (laughs) 
so yes, it may seem as if though it's just fun and, and sharing pictures with our friends, but to me, that's, that's really uh, easily the kind of situation that could be compared to a, a kind of a labor camp dynamic, you know. That was, I was just thinking of that because so much of artists' career, life, whatever is mediated nowadays by, you know, Facebook and Instagram. Right. And, uh, and uh, but you, 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 you just talked about your ambivalence about, you know, using yeah. these platforms. And so it's been very much, you know, on your mind that, you know, and these are the companies which are, you know, highly criticized nowadays for creating yeah. a kind of also political milieu we, we are dealing with. Yeah, it's it's super complicated. And, and you know, if, if we had the conversation two years ago and, and you would say, oh, you know, you're actually going to be working on this massive project for months every day and it'll be essentially an Instagram project. I would laugh because it just seems it just seems totally preposterous. But pandemic changed all of that. And and I mean, it almost seems tried to say it right. It's a it, the world had been altered by this uh, by this event. But it, it, it is true. I mean, I, I I think that as far as extreme historical phenomena go, this is about as as big as it gets. I mean, we we we're still in the midst of massive global tragedy. And again, one of the things that this that that was clear about this project to me is that people connected with it because we understood on some level a lot of these issues very very deeply without even you know speaking of these of these things out loud so and this it goes all the way from sort of the transparency of the the political and and social ugliness of it all the way to these sort of foundational ideas or concepts of us collectively confronting our mortality for example right and so i think that the project also had this uh, real dynamic range moments where it was very harsh and directly critical of the the political space but also reflecting on on i don't know the the fact that spring had come and and we are all locked up and the trees are blooming and the death is in the air and and being able to talk quietly about this as well and so that's the in a way a luxury of working on, on the work that has 225 components i can afford to spend time lingering on something simple and quiet and i can also find the time to scream about something that we all feel completely enraged by wow i think we should let it go at that those were wonderful uh words to end on screaming in the dark while making <laughs> gentle messages i love it um thank you so much peter this is peter shahalski that we've been talking to about his COVID-19 labor camp project. Thanks so much. We are looking forward to seeing the book in print. There's a book yes. coming. Uh, we'll have links in Art Blog when we publish this to where you can find the book, where you can find out more about you and your work, your labor camp work. Mm -hmm. Patrick, thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you both. Peter, it's thank been you. such a pleasure. Thank you so yeah. much for your work. Thank you both for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you. And shout outs to Anna and all the cohorts in Philadelphia that made it possible. <laughs> Indeed. Thank yeah. you, Philadelphia. Okay. Yes. Bye, everyone. You've been listening you. to Art Blog Radio. Thank you. Thank you.